You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is, is The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. So on the show this month, you will hear my conversation with Alberto Garini, also known as Gabba Eleganza. We discuss the importance of archiving, the aesthetic of hardcore, and the construction of his live show. First up though, I'm handing over to RA contributor Gabriel Satin, who spent some time interviewing the minds behind the film, A Sonic Pulse. A Sonic Pulse follows three people with varying levels of hearing impairment as they navigate making music and absorbing music in live environments. Gabriel is partially deaf as a result of noise exposure in his teenage years. He speaks to the filmmaker Dorothy Allen Picard and director Antoine Marino, who is also hearing impaired. They discuss the challenges of representing deafness on screen as well as their personal experiences and the wider trends of discrimination facing the deaf community. I'm Dorothy and I'm a filmmaker. So we made a short documentary called A Sonic Pulse, which looks at how deaf people experience electronic music. I'm Antoine, I'm a graphic designer originally, and we've been working on this one for the first time as a director. Um, I think for this one, we wanted to sort of step away from the classic, sort of classic, scene like music scene or ge geographical scene of electronic music and try to focus on something which has a different you know stand a different view on, on how people experience music in more general view and this original idea came from first my deafness which is obviously a sort of awareness towards these kind of issues related to sound and, and perception of music and also this um, very nice uh, exhibition that I saw once at um, like installation, video installation at the V&A, which was called Tonotopia or something. It was about people experiencing sound in general after having their cochlear implant fitted, fitted or yeah. something. And one person was uh, explaining her experience of going to a festival which was field day and having a failure in her equipment and experiencing music and the whole event without perceiving any music and therefore focusing much more on you know, visuals and the crowd and emotions. And I thought it was really fascinating. It's interesting, I've actually had that experience a few times, which we can get onto in a minute, but we should really focus mm -hmm. on you first. Um, Tell us about your experience. It might be, sorry? I want to hear your experience. They're varied and weird, but they also kind of, quite like the film they end with a weird sense of like um, understanding and knowing and like I'm quite at ease when it happens now that I've kind of gone through it once or twice it puts me like in a state of almost like you've got to roll with the punches like if something's happened to my ears at a festival or if I'm on the job I can't really rut about it and it's happened a few times so I just have to see it as well there's gonna be a half day where my senses are completely out of whack so I might as well kind of go through the motions with it and enjoy it rather than like being scared of it. We'll get onto that in a minute. What, what happened to your head? Oh, I, uh, they, I'd lost like my entire high end overnight when I was 19. So I have lyrics like built in um, hearing aids that I toggle with a um, magnet, which means that I can like deliberately turn my ears off at festivals, which is really fun to do sometimes, wow. especially if uh, people are a little gone throughout the day and everyone's chatting in my ear. I literally just shut them out and focus on the music and sound stuff, which is why I'm doing this interview with you. That's but you've got, firstly, a deep knowledge of electronic music and also um, an uncommon hearing problem. And mm -hmm. I wondered, A, if that was genetic from birth or if that developed, and B, how your taste in music might have changed as you kind of got into this second stage mode where your hearing was not as it was. I had an accident when I was 21 and I lost almost completely the left ear, like the Hearing. Left, yeah, hearing from the left ear, um, which actually doesn't really affect much my experience of music. Or since I'm, I mean, before doing this documentary, maybe 
I wasn't aware of it that much, but now maybe I'll maybe focus more or try to be a bit more sensitive to what, what I'm actually feeling rather than just hearing. But I think I still have a very, like a very normally functioning hearing on the other side, which means I've never really focused that much on, on, on this disability or this, this hearing loss that much. Did you listen to electronic music before you were 21? Yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, actually, I, I had an accident after going out in the club. So I was definitely partying right before losing, like after having this accident and losing my, my ear. So yeah, I was, I was very into music before and I'm, I still am. What actually makes me think now is I'm definitely much more aware of the fragility of hearing and I'm definitely more you know, I value it more and I guess I got a better understanding on how to preserve my, my ear and, and make sure that I want to keep this gem for, for as long as I can. When you two were conducting interviews for the film, how did that awareness of the fragility kind of manifest and how did it grow? Were you speaking to dozens of people or was it just the three protagonists that we see on screen? Were they the ones guiding you and how it meant to have like a sensory experience rather than a hearing experience? Do you have a wide cast net or just zone in on them? So we just had the three and we actually found them really randomly and it's one of those things that you look back on and you're like, that actually worked really, really well because it's very different experiences. So the three interviewees, Helen Oakley has a cochlea and started severely losing her hearing when she was 19 and quite soon after that got a cochlear implant um, and has, she, one of the first times she made music was she had the cochlea turned on so suddenly your whole hearing kind of changes and you get it essentially updated so then again you hear it, you know, it's constantly changing the way you hear. And she heard a thunderstorm on this kind of, she was in the attic loft room, heard the thunderstorm and it, you know, it's like surround sound, all these different frequencies and really atmospheric and she started making electronic music in response to that and you can kind of imagine why she was drawn to electronic music um, as a way of in some way mirroring it. And then Troy Lee, so we, I just, I put a thing out on Instagram or something saying we're doing this. Um, I think I was actually looking for crew, but then my friend Rain's mum messaged me being like, I just met this amazing woman, Helen, and found what she had to say fascinating, speak with her. So that was Helen. And she, Helen was kind of very open to having any conversation and I don't feel like she particularly tried to direct it in one way or another. Troy, however, is he's kind of like the core of the deaf rave community. So he runs and organises this night, Deaf Rave. It was actually really interesting because I was going to ask them all similar questions and before we went to do the interview, he basically said, this isn't going to be another interview about how is it that you hear music, you're deaf, you know, he gets asked these questions and does these kind of quite generic interviews all the time and it just becomes an emotional kind of entryist thing of like, but you can't hear and music is based on hearing, how does it work? Like, yeah, it, yeah I can imagine he's probably sick of that over 15 plus years of running it, it seems like a dinner party thing that you should get out of the way or maybe just like have the foresight not to ask a deaf person that. Yeah, and so he, and I, I wasn't going to ask him that, but the way that he... He also said, I don't want to talk about deaf politics, um, which I actually didn't know much about, but, you know, obviously... Which he eventually did. Yeah, which actually, in the end, he spoke loads about. But so he, before we sat down for the interview, just in our little exchange, I was like, OK, he's been... Any obvious question that comes into my head, scrap that, anything that feels too basic, and actually make it much more about his specific taste in music and how his experience of growing up in Hackney has made that so diverse and yeah, centre it on something very personal. Um, but I was, it was one of those things where I was like, I really want this to be an interesting and kind of fruitful experience for him. And I hope he walks away with something, you know, with, with something valuable. Um, but he might not, this might just be a generic thing. And actually he's responded really, really positively to the film and loves it. And at the end of the day was like, that was wicked. Thanks guys. And then Richard France, who's the other guy, he, I mean, I could ask him like, how are you? And he would come up with the most elaborate, like bonkers, amazing, imaginative response. He's just like, 
He's the older man. He's yeah. the older guy, yeah. Who certainly seemed to be more, if not more articulate, his answers, as you say, were more kind of like sprawling all across the map. It was Troy definitely, but by proxy of being like a, a flag bearer for the deaf community, has his set answers. And then obviously, because he has to represent people, it, it would fall on him if he was misrepresenting them. Um, whereas the other two definitely felt a little less scripted and maybe a bit more... Uh, charismatic in that way they came across it was also it was interesting when you're for those listening to the podcast who may not have watched it um you can listen to it without subtitles and it is naturally subtitled but the difference in speech is there's like a massive fall off which is really interesting um i don't know whether that came up in your interviews but articulation is something that people that are born deaf struggle with massively because they have no perception of what speech sounds like in the same way that normal people do and i found that interesting that you had two people who were rather articulate and then a third who's speaking which more much more labored i don't know whether i don't know whether that's just yeah yeah. yeah. well troy said that his mum used to train every single time he would you know, I, I mispronounce isn't even the word because it's just a different pronunciation, right? But every time he would, I think he was just having words, two hours every him. every single day. He was having two hours of pronunciation work with with her mum, like because she knew how important it was for him to both be in, to be in both worlds, even though you are never part of both worlds at the same time. But like you can still be, and and that's actually what we found out about Helen, the fact that she was hearing before fully, means that she speaks quite perfectly and therefore she doesn't she never really felt the need to actually and that's that's deafness deaf politics she never felt the, the need to actually learn sign language and therefore which when she de- became deaf she was still she wasn't able to communicate with the deaf community in general but was becoming a bit out of the box from the general like not the general but like the hearing community so she ended up being a bit sort of halfway in between. There's a part where they speak about not being let into a pub because they're using sign language in the queue and that that denigration is felt more keenly and that kind of spurred Troy Lee, I think, on to form something to serve the deaf community. And that might not be held by someone with only partially damaged hearing because they're not using sign language in the same way. You need to create space and, and, and community on your own to compensate the fact that you are not a part of something else, I guess. So I guess your level of disability in that sense makes you more in need to actually be implicated. Implicated? Yeah. Involved? In, yeah. 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 And it's definitely about visibility, I think. That thing of like passing or not passing. I found some of Troy Lee's experiences, and I, I was reading up on him, um, interesting because he speaks about walking around his local town listening to public enemy cassettes when he's 14 and speaks about that kind of like uh eureka moment of going to a rave and having that uh, sliding doors in his life where after that nothing was the same and that was the experience you want to hold on to and those kind of things are familiar to millions and it shows that his hearing is not an impediment to sharing those experiences of having your life altered at a rave but he was lucky enough to have that and i think when he saw more and more people of his kind shut out, he felt that like spur to widen the access for them so that they wouldn't be denied what he was lucky enough to have as a child, um, which is quite a noble thing to do. Um, obviously, it's his life's work, but you do often need that one person to spur on the start of progress. Otherwise, people just kind of get stuck in a rut. And there will be architects, there will be club programmers and people who run spaces you know, even in London, in any city, where they're not thinking about making that space accessible. It wouldn't even be on people's radars. How do we make a social space such as a club accessible for deaf people? And I think even in, yeah, Troy's doing an amazing job of raising awareness around that. And actually, it's this idea that you're only as disabled as your environment makes you is so crucial, Um, yeah. Potentially, there, there are like lots of interesting ways in which you can actually change the architecture or the function of a club so that it is fully accessible for everyone and everyone can experience it. 
I pulled up a, a statistic that The Guardian had last year saying that in the UK's live music consensus in February, this would be February 2018, um, found that only 30% of surveyed venues had dedicated disabled access areas and only 7% had a policy to provide PA for people that are hearing impaired. Yet there's been a 70% rise in disabled access ticket sales in 2016 to 2017. So it feels like the, the two lines on the graph are overlapping slightly um, and that obviously needs a correction so that they um, they dovetail together and access is available for all rather than it being seen as a venue. Often I feel that venues only sub subject to pressure when they have to, when there's been a public outcry or where there's been one case that has been really shameful and then they get their act into gear where it should be really them taking progressive approaches to make sure that no one's excluded in the same way. I think we had that with actually on a different topic but all different level we had that with the festival that have shown how film entering the screening the film other film during the night weren't um, sub, um, sub, subtitled which means that we were you know tackling a subject about accessibility to something or to sound or to, to film and the other film were were not accessible to the people that we have been involving in the project and I found that quite surprising and that, that, that shows how even organization with the best will can sometimes don't have that a blind spot you know, for that kind yeah, of thing, definitely. yeah and it always you know the thing is it always falls to deaf people to constantly or disabled people in general to be talking about accessibility when actually it's something that we should all be aware of and because that in itself is you know it's long <laughs> every time you meet someone or go somewhere to have to be like have you thought of this this that do you tick these boxes mm. But I think for music in general, like based on how research and stuff, there's been a lot of improvement, as you said, in terms of accessibility and new, new exploration for, for giving access to people through a different spectrum of equipment, whether, whether it's the, the jackets, like the vibrational jackets, or lighting systems uh, that actually make you feel the music or, or perceive the music differently than just by hearing it. So I think, and, and just like, live BSL with, with live music and I don't know if you can actually do that for electronic music if there is no lyrics but maybe maybe there is a way I don't know so there are like there are still loads of new um, yeah new new uh, kind of inventions, yeah, inventions and, and just just like a, a, yeah a raising awareness and therefore technological responses to that. Dorothy when it comes to um, bringing these quite uh, tangible and human concerns about like sensory feeling of sound and vibrations. When it comes to portraying that on a screen, how do you go about it? Because your work, especially The Mess, which is great, which for those who are listening into this, I encourage you to see, um, articulated by polarity, by way of someone's life falling down and then kind of raising back up. But this is something completely different because bipolarity is rooted in emotions and perceptions, whereas here we're in a sensory realm where people are often denied an entire sense. I don't know how you can get that across on the screen in six or seven minutes. That's kind of why I love film though, is because you can break down all of the different senses. So it's obviously visual and the visuals move. So it's a time-based medium. And then there's sound, which has dialogue, but also you break it down in sound design and then also the score. There's like so many, so that's like all these different elements that are deconstructed. And I guess if you break it down in terms of a human, how you experience sound or music, you think about all of the different senses. So feeling and like the vibrational thing and the sound and how you might visualize that. And one really, I mean, I think it came to us straight away, the idea, quite an obvious visualization of of sound and frequencies and sort of beats is through the somatics. So I thought it was particularly effective with the water. It just yeah. looked really good. <laughs> but um, we, we spent also, four hours shooting sand and yeah, it didn't we work spent that, like, that well. Oh right, sand, yeah. Sand, we spent yeah, like sand. 10 hours in a room, in our living room, which we turned into a little studio, blocked out the windows, put some lights so it got really hot. And we just slightly lost the plot watching sand bounce and filming it. Um, on 16 mil and on digital, <laughs> and we have something like five hours of that. But the you know somatics um, with water and with 
with different sort of like grains and different elements is just this amazing visual visualization through patterns um yeah of, of frequencies and it was it's really fun to play with that and so we wanted the musical score to also relate to these visualizations we created. I think the, the, the sound was very important and, and actually listening to Richard's France music, I don't know if you, you probably haven't came, come, came across his music, but it's really experimental and really he captured sound environment and tweak them and distort them and create a, a whole new realm of, of music and sound. And I think listening to his music was very important and make, made us feel like the need to connect his his approach to music and his creation to a more abstract visuals and therefore very close up um, you know thematic close up and, and and you know juggling between the two or actually you know echoing echoing the two together but the sound was very important in that in that sense i guess and yeah we just wanted to make it like the more immersive possible and and his ambient noise and sound is really strong for that and it actually goes very well with with the close-up when when it gets a bit less obvious that it's actually patterns forming or, or, or water moving but sometimes it's just bubbles and and some you know and, and and the edit was also very important to make it even more abstract and more poetic in a way. what i thought was um interesting when we I think it's in the first minute or maybe the second when you go to people with instruments and a, a sound speaker and the first thing we hear is such a common phrase when a DJ is clanging a mix of a galloping horse and the fact that that was transmittable just through the air vibrations was incredible to me that that is a, a reference point that I slip into conversation five or six times a week when out at a club and the fact that that's transmutable through air shows that really there isn't that much difference between having full hearing and no hearing when you have like a the perceptiveness to reach the kind of analogies and similes in that way it immediately broke down the barrier and she doesn't need to hear that at all she can feel it it was a really like nice way to bed into those people's worlds very quickly so well done i guess um yes. The other thing I really liked when we had the, the group shot is the close-up on people's fingers because so much of the film is rooted in sign language that the average viewer probably isn't going to see day-to-day -day on the street. And you had a lot of hands moving in correlation with the speech and then close-up people's fingertips touching instruments that felt very tactile and intimate and personal. Yeah, that's nice. Thank you. Yeah, the, the music workshop was also like one way of just breaking down. So it's basically finding a group of deaf people who don't know that much about music and so we're, and haven't created music before so we're doing it in this very responsive and kind of open way and talking about their experience that felt like a really good way of rather than saying to a deaf person how do you experience music getting them to experience music and learn about it and create it themselves and so us as an audience they don't have to explain it verbally or whatever but us as an audience can just you know, can just kind of follow that learning process and what it is when you break down music and put it back up and really feel it. I think it's also a way to involve people who otherwise wouldn't feel very legitimate, legitimate to talk about or to be involved in music because they, the first question she asked during the workshop, which is not in the edit, is what's your experience about music? And everybody's sort of all, almost awkwardly embarrassed because no one has ever had an experience and whether it's creating music or listening to music that much. So I guess it was a very important thing as well to implicate, like to involve people who don't really you know, relate to music in that sense. It's something that I guess is a correlated effect of being lost in one's own head, especially if you have impaired or fully deaf hearing, um, that you are by proxy really isolated from the world outside both in the macro and the micro like you lack the ability to communicate in an unlabored way with someone in a shop on the tube it, it creates a, a natural barrier um, and I thought that the community aspects of raving um, was probably the most important takeaway I had from from the short uh, I've read another statistic about depression rates and deaf people being extremely high because of that isolating factor. And so as well as there being this um, 
the kind of smile-inducing takeaway that you're seeing people experience music in a way other than our own or adding an extra sensory uh, heft to it. You've got a sense that these community events are vital because they provide human interaction, which is often denied to people. And it's such a common... Um, uh, it's such a common trope of when you talk about raving all together, blah, 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 and that's something that we probably all take for granted that you don't need a rave to hang out with friends or be kind of in concert with other people and their bodies and their emotions. But a space that is swamped with sound, swamped with vibrations for these people really is like the absolute best place that they can experience those connections, which should drive the government or civic bodies to create more of them because you probably could break a lot of the depressive and even suicidal rates amongst deaf people simply by getting them all in one place and giving them a good time. Yeah. And also breaking the boundaries between the two worlds as well. And, and Troy was talking about building bridges between communities. And that's actually one, one I, I remember one footage, it's a subtitle, it's like an archival footage from Death Rave and the, the guy is, I think he's saying, uh, we are all partying together in here. And I think it's really important as well that, you know, those spaces and music is here as well to make that happen, like, you know, building bridges between deaf world and hearing world. And it's so. interesting how the moment music has lyrics or even we use dialogue, we think of that as, you know, the form of communication that brings us together. And actually, it's not. Actually, like, the common language that we all do speak, feel, know is actually, like, a musical one and one that's... I guess much more kind of, I want to avoid using the word pure, but just really basic, like fundamental, a thing about, yeah, about particles and the way that we actually feel sounds and how music brings people together across boundaries of hearing, non-hearing. Thanks to Gabriel, Dorothy and Antoine for sharing their insight. You can take in the film A Sonic Pulse at residentadvisor.net where you can also find a transcription of that interview. Gabba Eleganza started out as a blog and has grown to encompass a research platform, live performance and even a book celebrating hardcore culture. I sat down with the artist behind the alias, Alberto Garini, earlier this year at the LNCC store. Today, I'll be spending some time getting to know an artist, a DJ, a live performer, a curator. Hello, Alberto. Ciao. So you're also known as Gabba Eleganza. Yeah. Thank you for spending some time with us uh, this thank evening. You, you grew up in Italy. I want to know what is your earliest music memory? I think some just cartoon stuff. I think Mary Poppins. I was a five. This is my first. But we think about rave music. I think I was 10. Some cousin tape from like a bootleg of a bootleg of a bootleg a tape passed by hand by hand, you know, old style stuff. And uh, and the first time that I listened uh, M4 and 4 high BPM stuff was like uh, on the daily food market and a style that was selling, uh, yeah, music b b bootleg and uh, I was 10, I think, was 10. And it was hardcore on the speakers during the day with the old lady buying uh, chicken and uh, f fresh fruits, something like that. And uh, I was 10, yeah, I was nine, 96. These one are the uh, the first memory about music, mm. rave music also. Okay, so with that first memory about rave music, what was it that stood out to you in those sounds? What were you drawn to? 
of course the the rhythm you know it was like uh, something that was very alien especially if after 10 you come from you know countryside nothing to do and uh, you spend time in afternoon listen um normal standard radio and uh, in one day after you jumping in this world of alien music is completely out of your world the only thing that i remember was this kind of frenetic beats that bring me into another level so that's probably the pill that's actually never left me so from being 10 years old all the way through to like 2011 and starting gabriella ganzo as a blog what was your relationship to hardcore music from that period in italy maybe the rave scene has we think about like a commercial rave scene never exploded like in uk or in germany or in benelux but was something similar to relate to club to the big discotheque we have a probably the most number of discotheque in the old Europe and uh, the biggest architecture stuff, you know, thousands of people capacity, something like that. So there was a moment that uh, Harker was already into the big clubs in Italy, especially close to my area, Bergamo and Brescia in the North Italy, Lombardy. When you grow up in that place, the only two kind of music you can grow up, hardcore and metal actually. So it was like working class music in that in that area. After a year, when I started to go to college, I discovered Gabbers. That's for me wasn't another, f- I never heard about. I was already listening hardcore, but Gabba style arrived later to me. It was a new alien things to approach because hardcore style and aesthetic for a young kids or the tribe was very flesh, very fluid and wasn't style for me. So uh, when, I, when I saw the first Gabber on the street, for me was, okay, another alien, I like it. So it was a completely different and out, out of world. So that was around uh, 2000, in the moment of, you know, the, the big crisis of rave music and the rave system. So uh, I'm started to dig in so much in this kind of tribe and style because it was for me a way of life, of course. When you are young and you discover your tribe, you, you do everything for them, you know? It's passionate, I think it's a dedication, like every kind of street subculture. And um, in that moment for me was to discover the original sound of hardcore. So I discovered Gabba, Gabba aesthetic in the 2000, 2001, but for me was to looking into the past because it was already a big stuff in, in, in Holland in the mid of 19. So I was listening old hardcore in the early 2000s. So I was already listening goss, already archivist, something like that in in really natural way. And so just the passion remained and uh, in in organic ways it's become this project that I have now, it's called Gabriel Legans. Were you going raving as well? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, Wasn't proper rave like in UK style but it was like a big discotheque. It was a number one club. It's still open in activity. It was Florida is also still, you know, this kind of big place with a big room. You can find one room. It was trance, one art trance, one hardcore, something like that. And of course, raving when I grow up, that's mostly like a free, free party. And of course, when I become 18, my parents give me possibility to, to visit and discover Holland. Uh, of course, in the uh, Thunderdome, an old big uh, hardcore rave party. And I discovered a new world that actually wasn't really me. I preferred like the do-yourself and the underground style. And Holland is like uh, too much well-organized. You understand what I mean? You you can lose the feeling of the roughness. When you started Gabriella Ganza, it was like a Tumblr page, a blog. <laughs> yes. What did it look like? Yes, uh, like a Tumblr infinite scroll. <laughs> Actually, it's still like that. Uh, it's not changed so much, uh, the, the graphic. I just bought 10 pounds uh, design page and uh, I still use it actually. So I, now I have my website, but there is an archive that actually opened a Tumblr. So I like it. So why not? You know, it's, I think it's pragmatic, very simple. And I'm not so much technologic, so for me, it's perfect to use it. In what way would you say Tumblr has impacted your career and your music journey? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, for me, it's, it's very, as I said, very organic. I still do. Of course, now is my job. But back in the days, I still do archive because I, I feel it. I feel it just because I feel it. I do whatever I want to do. 
So is uh, if I wanna to tomorrow stop the blog, I will stop the blog because I I don't need to say nothing else. I st I still have this kind of angriness to say okay, there is something that uh, we can discover, we can talk about, we can uh, show to the people. I open for revaluated a misunderstanding between uh, uh, hardcore rave and GABA culture, GABA subculture, and post-rave phenomenon that sometimes, you know, they use like not serious things. Let's try to push in another level that is not just about a cliche and music. Let's try to, to use like a UK uh, rave culture, bring a rave in all kind of genre and spectra in the new dimension. It is not just about music, or a phenomenon, but let's try to push out of boundaries. That could be art, that could be social uh, environment phenomenon, and uh, that could be, of course, music, but in a progressive way, in a new way. Just use something that we have for the past, and we use it to describe and to create something new. So was that kind of your intention when you started the blog? No, 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 no. It was very naive at the start, just sharing stuff that I like it, of course, in not a very serious way. Of course, the name also is not like the most serious and uh, pretentious name. Of course, is a is a bit uh, <laughs> is a bit funny name. Of course, not a paradox. So they started a little bit like uh, in very naive, very natural. Maybe it's better, very natural, to use a picture that I collected and uh, I still collected in digital and uh, physical archive to publish material that nobody see because if you in the past it was very frustrating to check in on uh, on uh, on Google and if you're looking for gabbers you have this kind of cliche with belt heads that do it like a uh, tongue out of tongue and you know it's just so much I think I respect because I discovered a side like an insider that other people can understand so I tried to push stuff that nobody saw it, mixing uh, video and uh, material from artists that maybe work it with uh, GABA subculture or rave subculture. So that's the idea to open, to not just relate only hardcore stuff. So the idea of hardcore continuum to use uh, UK stuff also. In the moment that I discover Ewan Spencer stuff, and now we, we, we made a book together. So for me, connecting to the new world so it was very... I was very open, no boundaries, just publish whatever I want. We'll get onto the book soon, but what was it about the visual side of kind of hardcore culture, like the aesthetic? What is it that stands out to you about that? Why are you drawn to that? You know, when you grow up with something, uh, when you have a teen, you are, you know, you, you start to, do, to, to be a part of subculture. This kind of things remains with you forever because it was a part of your life for few years especially in the years where you're growing up so stay with you and i think that's you know the hardcore aesthetic is very close to metal and uh, and a side of hardcore is also close to punk aesthetic do yourself but of course the mostly one is very like horror movie monsters uh, uh, powerful you know what's very very shocking aesthetic that's course when you have 14 15 is you know, is the only things that you're looking for for a male in uh, in italy <laughs> was very attractive of course because it was like uh, discover a new world it was a mixing of comics ecstatic uh, with horror movie and uh, all this kind of name el razors nightmare in rotterdam thunderdome stormcore you know was pretty charming and uh, <laughs> back in the days was very and now probably you know, people are still looking to something that is pretty exotic, especially in the world and the world of now. That's every everything is very policy and polite. And you you be pay very attention to what you said. This kind of aggressive, clean aggressive is uh, still charming for people, especially the people that work with the visual, of course. So I try to push the visual side because. A lot of other forums talk about music sites, so nobody uses the visual side. For me, it was n not like a strategy just because I liked it. I collected the visual side of the things, posters. I'm not a collector, but I try to just collect the things that I like it. And uh, so the charming things was 
this kind of very colorful world, but at the same time was a labyrinth of nightmares with the candy at the corner, something like that. So it's like a video game, actually. It was sound like to be in a video game, the hardcore aesthetic. And as the site grew, what percentage or what balance would you say it was like an archive versus like a documentation of like more the social side of like culture? Archive is the biggest part. But of course, with your archive and your uh, direction, you can uh, push the sensitive of the people to understand there is something more. And uh, I'm not an archivist because sometimes a guy told me that if you are a real archivist, you need to show everything, also the bad things of a scene. And that's actually the archivists do. You can do everything. Actually, so I'm starting to talk about the, pro the Tumblr also is like a, an artist curator archive. It's more than just an archive because I just selected what I want and it, it remixing in my own way to push my vision. A sort of, uh, you know, has a mark like in Ferrucci made, made me hardcore, the ghost of the past. That's exactly the same attitude to use something from the past that was me, was very passionate, but remixing my own way. So sometimes people told me, call me the ambassador of, of Gabber and say, come on, that's very ridiculous. You know, it's not, because it's not true. I just took my vision that is very different to the vision. That is just uh, someone that rem remixing something and they do it their own. So that's, uh, I think the biggest per percentage is uh, archive, of course. But um, it's most like uh, uh, related to visual, graphic and arts. But this kind of sensitive can push people to understand also the um, social um, environment. Because if you show, for example, I, um, I work at and I show a, a lot of uh, posts about uh, an artist uh, called Filippo Minelli in Italy uh, with this project called Padania Classi. Padania is the north side of Italy. Is a field that's come from Milan to Venice, and you have this long highway. It's the most polluted area in Europe, one of the biggest in the world from Milan to Venice, and uh, is the richest part of uh, Italy. And uh, you have most polluted, most uh, industrial environment. N and on the highway for 30 kilometers, you can see only warehouse and work, 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 work. You know, this kind of environment, I grew up there. So I show my environment through another artist. Of course, it's not related to hardcore, but in this way, you put another ingredient to the story. It's not like a social text because I'm not good to, I'm sorry, my English maybe is not the best one, but I'm not good also to, to write, I'm not good. So I work with, with the visual and with the music. So I use uh, also other, stuff like a curator to show also the social side of uh, the phenomenon. Well, you built something up from a Tumblr page to like a respected curatorial body. How important is it to you to be in the worlds of like art and exhibitions and galleries? It's not the word that I'm looking for, but of course it's fascinating. And uh, I met a lot of people that I respect and uh, it's not uh, my environment. I, I'm feeling more like a musician, like a, more like a DJ. This is like my natural place. Uh, but of course, mm, I think that this kind of sensitive, that's cool work also with art. So I'm very open to discover it. I'm a very open mind. So um, everything is not like, as I told, uh, organic. So if I can work with the art world, I'm very open. It's not door closed for me. So it's it's not that I'm looking for. I feel more comfortable in the music because it's just what I like to do, but uh, why not? So I'm open. Well, we'll talk more about your music later on, but I wanted to ask about like the t-shirts and the merchandise that you've created. Why does that come in as an important element to you? Uh, it's, it's, it's a natural step also that and uh, was start like a, like a joke, I think, and become a and become a part of the job. You know, uh, as a do-yourself project, and merchandise is important things now for the bands and the artists to support your hearts. You not sell it music anymore, so merchandise help you to uh, to do other stuff. So with the merchandise, I invest money to do book, 
and that's the step by step, you know, do yourself style things. You know, I'm I'm an independent, so I work alone, and uh, merchandise start very, as I say, like a joke, and become part now of the project, and now it's become a sort of um, another binary that's can evolve in other things. I'm starting to work also with a with a, a designer jewelry. Is a top secret project, but for a unique piece, you know, it's I'm start to work very open minded. I don't want to be like just the guy that talk about Gabber, you know. <laughs> so that I use this one to remix my word and still remix my word. I'm still continued. I'm not just stepping in these things. Would you describe for us your favorite piece of merchandise that you've made? Uh, it's a patch that's never uh, going out, made on butcher PVC with a picture that want to use to, to on, the, on the bomber jacket, but was so hard to fix it. It's a prototype. Actually, I like all the, all the t-shirt that I made it. I like all design. There is no one that I'm shamed or no one that I love because it's come from me and like everything that it's I'm proud of everything that I made. Also, the things that not sell it or are the one that says so much. I'm still proud of everything that I made. You love them all equally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, let's get into talking about the book. So it's called Hardcore Soul. Came out this year. Why did you want to do a book? Because it was a, a moment to do a new step. And it uh, was the moment to open a label, Never Sleep. And, uh, but with my heritage uh, in the do-yourself world that was already published, a lot of fanzine, was a natural step to do a book. So the idea is to open a multimedia label doing book and publication and music. So the first things what let's do a book that's for me is more easy to do a records. And uh, so I, I made a book with a collaboration of uh, a photographer, a UK, UK photographer, Ewan uh, Spencer, uh, and I proposed to him to do a sort of curatorial project, not just a picture, his picture, just let's mix two unpublished stuff from Happy Hardcore Scene and um, Northern Soul, Soul Weekender Scene in UK. And uh, so the idea is to, to create this kind of coexistence of two worlds that look so much different, but actually come from the same uh, roughness and the same social environment and the same attitude and uh, without chronological order. So just mixing the picture. And uh, with additional elements from uh, Jack Mills and the Turner Prize Mark Leckie, because it was a sort of the father of the old project, sort of that give me the seeds to start the things. And uh, with a mixtape by me that I'm just um, cut all the kick drum from a happy hardcore sound, doing a sort of limbo for 20 minutes of candiness and synthesizers. So the idea is to create this kind of limbo. There's still the idea of the ghost from the past that you can't really touch it. It's, not, it's a little bit like a plasma. And so that's the idea. Now we're working on, uh, on the music. Um, End of the year, next year, I'm going to publish the first EP uh, by a UK artist called Lidziski. So we'll be the first, we, the first EP of the, the label. And so, of course, now we start. I'm planning a new book next year, probably end of the next year, only by me. And I want to do also publishing uh, other stuff material, just uh, like a publisher. And um, I already plan like a five uh, release from the label big plans so yeah. if you do a new book will you take photos yourself for it no no it's mostly like a creator it's like a uh, creator stuff like a blog put it it's more like a researcher and going back to hardcore soul do you remember the first time that you saw you and spencer's photos and how did they make you feel when you first saw them the first one i th uh, I, I realized later that was was uh, was him was like uh, i think was from the streets album original paramaterial the inside was like i bought that album like 2005, 2006, the vinyl, and it was him that were playing at the pool. And later I discovered, so that's what the first time, but I discovered later. Uh, but the first time that I published his stuff was 2012, and I saw just picture of uh, UKG, I think. Uh, he, he was working on uh, some 
some series from or days or ID or something like that. And uh, I found so much uh, intense um, picture, but at the same time very respectful. It wasn't a voyeur uh, um, touch, but was most like, I am the guy that have fun with you, but just make a picture. So everybody feels uh, look like so much free that I like this the kind of vibes. It is not like a, you know, give me a pose or uh, there was like just a, an outsider invisible eye and that I like that kind of style. So that was the moment like seven, seven, six years ago. Is there a particular photograph that really, really speaks to you that is published in the book? I, li I love all the all the pictures. Uh, we know you love everything. Yeah, yeah come on. And uh, I um, no one a couple of tr a couple of pictures I just deleted because was pretty similar to other one. I like the happy hardcore black and white, of course. Uh, it's not me, but uh, the tree guy with a whistle that I use it also for one of the t-shirt. That's pretty good. I made a big uh, one meter from meter in my my studio. And uh, there is three guy that look into the camera and one have a whistle and they are, it is, you can see so much the sweat, you can smell it. And I like uh, this kind of, because it's real, it's not uh, honest picture, you know, it's not pretentious. I like this kind of honestly. And uh, I think it's very respectful. In that case, it was a little bit pose, but was very respectful at the same time. It wasn't a cliche or just, uh, you know, um, too much was you know sometimes photographer looking for uh, the aggressive things you know the now the, we call it the beat click because you need to be you know shocking people it was i like this kind of respectful smoothness style of his, his style and you mentioned mark lecky as a sort of godfather of the whole thing um, what was it like to work with him on the book Actually, Ewan worked with him because they made a record because it's it's very busy man artist, and uh, we we chatted. We talk about he invited me to NTS to do uh, an interview, so it was a good occasion to spend a couple of hours with him chilling. We talk about himself, what he do. So for me, it was a legend, so a hero, and uh, was was some you know sometimes when you when you meet one of your hero. Is not the coolest day of your life because you realize it's uh, so normal that uh, it actually is cool at the same time. But uh, after he was very busy because now he have a uh, he launched a, um, exhibition at Tate in these days actually. So um, uh, at the start he was doing. Um, I asked him, "You can do a preface." But he was too busy uh, with the school and this were so at the end we decided to work on uh, a dialogue between him and Ewan that they already work on uh, another project together and and I asked them you need to talk about what is for you dance just about dance what you discover dance why for you is important or you are ashamed to dance something very personal because the soul you know, like hardcore soul come from the soul, something that was related to dance, like in the book, the sweatness, this kind of things. And that's a good, good, interesting point out from an interview. That's Jack Mills uh, helped me to edit and put into the book. So that is a good point that Mark Leckie talked about is uh, uh, how the Midlands people, uh, especially, you know, classic male working class guy, very rude. That's for the society need to be um, classic macho. And uh, they discover the dance. So the grateful and the great, not the graceful to dancing move. So actually is they help to discover a new kind of man themselves in, inside. So actually the dance help also UK culture to open to other things to be progressive and that is a very interesting point and is that something you felt like you related to as well of course i'm i'm not the the, the good dancer but um, you know i'm like it also a bit <laughs> let's talk about your relationship to djing so had you dj'd prior to gabriella ganza before gabriella ganza i was already djing with our uh, other moniker but in other other uh, other name was called pigger on sofa uh, actually is like lazy boy on sofa that's pretty a paradox with never sleep and uh, 
serotonic hardcore sound, but was just a funny name. I don't remember actually what, but I started to buy records when I was 16, 17, hardcore stuff. I just changed it, evolved. I discovered half extreme that play hardcore in another way. So let's buy the kind of things to try, discover breadcore and this kind of genre, give me this kind of hybrid uh, touch that I, I think I have with Gabriel again. So people think, okay, Gabba, you play hardcore. Mm, it's not really true. Of course, Ake show, I play hardcore, but DJ set, I play whatever I want. It's like, it could be techno, could be breadcore, could be uh, jungle, UK, hardcore continuum stuff, and hardcore, of course, mixing and hybrid everything. DJing uh, with the, this name become later, of course, because um, Lorenzo Senni asked me once, uh, I want to invite you, not as a pig row, but I want to ask you to play music with Gabriel Eganza. And I say, I don't know, I don't know. For me, it was just a, a side project in my life. And uh, I was really thinking to, to become a sort of artist project. But I say, no, no, you, you know, when someone give you, encourage you, you say, maybe I have something to say, you know. And uh, he say, we found uh, the best place for you. And Hunger Bicock is like to play a DJ set at the Tate you know, something like that for another artist called Kashtanuller. was a sound clash between Africa and Europe. was me and uh, an, an Africa band, uh, big, you know, for 10 elements on the other. It was a sound clash, actually. So I say, well, <laughs> what I can do? Me and with the 10 people that dancing. So let's bring some gabbers. So it was a sort of big clash and was the first moment. And I say, that's crazy. I, just, I feel it, the energy as in the past. I lost this kind of energy. I, I refill it now, rely, relieve. Let me take the music when I, I grow up and remix it after 15 years of new music. So I'm starting to do a DJ set. And is that where the inspiration for the Hacker Show came from? Exactly. It was the first night. Actually, that night was a very, very organic. Just say, let's do it something, not planet. And uh, works. And so step by step, we plan it a bit better. So now have different dancer. And actually, Hockey Show is growing up now. I'm still, I want to add something other new at the Hockey Show. So that's his, I call it the performance because actually it is a performance. Bring the dancer, and I play for the dancers. I not play for the crowd. I play because I wanted the people, especially from outside Hockey World, that they don't know uh, Hockey moves. Hockey is a classic Dutch uh, Gabba, Gabbers dance move. Um, they can keep it the energy and the sweatness of this dance. So it's a sort of uh, update folklore. Some let's bring something like you know, like a pag, pap, uh, the, um, pagan mask, you know, in the Stone Age, something like that. You know, let's bring something that was like 20 years ago in a decontextualization. It's a sort of pay respect, of course, but at the same times let's keep it the new things. Let's. Let's try to push uh, to the new crowd that maybe can take it to some piece and do themselves remix. Mino? Where's Mino in this conversation? I don't know, it's uh, at home in Milan, I think. <laughs> now Mino is uh, one of the, is the hosted of the Aki show. He's the big boy, all tattooed. Actually, he's the only one that is not a true gabber. He's mostly, is a, is a kind of disturber hosted that I added to the show to jump into the crowd. It's a sort of Kit Fleet rip from the Prodigy Italian style. Sort of this kind of uh, uh, aggressive looking guy, but is so much tender and uh, so much sweet. But uh, it's, it's, it's a perfect glue with a little bit of entertainment, wild punk entertainment, we can call it. So what could you expect if you came to see the Hacker Show? Fast uh, hardcore beats. I'm I'm covered. You can see me. I wanna like uh, like to be in the shadow. I don't wanna be like uh, uh, the characters of the show. The, you 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 come and you can see dancer that's going wild because they feel it. All these people are gabber that still uh, raving from young kids from twenty, from the old guy from Rotterdam to thirty two. And they sweat. They really sweat on stage. And uh, I don't want to do like a fancy, um, uh, because it's not like that. The hardcore is a roughness. It's very primitive intensity. So that is the idea of the hockey show. 
Now I'm also working to do a sort of a, a special act show with a, a chapter, a sort of a theater uh, uh, attitude to try to um, talk about not only about the music, but also about the aesthetic and the social environment. But this is a new chapter that I'm still working on it. But this could be the new progression and evolution of a hockey show. As a DJ, how does your approach have to differ playing to a regular crowd and playing to the people that you bring with you on the stage at that show? I am usually play for a hybrid crowd. Uh, I'm not playing like a strictly in a hardcore uh, crowd. And I really like it to play for um, for naive people because they have not target you. You know, they just try to enjoy the music, and I like it because uh, in that moment you can um, teach something. And I like this kind of you know the DJ need to need to be a teacher. I I like this kind of things. And but sometimes of course some hardcore heads come, some gabbers, and I like this kind of clash. And you're about to premiere a new show, a new audiovisual show. How is that different and what can we expect from seeing that? I'm still working. I think that's uh, there's a lot of work to do, but this could be a new chapter, not just for the hockey show, but probably doing something live with my music. And uh, that could be the first step to doing uh, live for me, actually, because I'm also still working with dancers. I like so much this kind of energy. Uh, in the electronic world, from my side, uh, sometimes performance is very boring. The visual side, especially audiovisual, sometimes is very pretentious. And I like when the, everything is very simple and very physical. So lasers in a good way, light in a good way, dance moves. I like these kind of things that actually push the boundaries. I like these kind of things. So I think that I, will, I really want to work on dancer that's not could be not only hockey dancers, but it could be like a professional dancer. And uh, visual, of course, that could be work. That's not visual like a VJ, but also visual like a cinema, more like a storytelling. So I have a lot of idea that I just need to, to mix. Is it the same for the label over the next few months? Like, can we expect releases on the way? Yeah, release, uh, as I say, that, that the first one is from Lidziski. And uh, it's, it's interesting release because it's a mix of uh, post-rave attitude and uh, early days of uh, Irish techno. And I like this kind of analogic experimental side. And uh, so the label uh, have no target. Of course, will be very rave, but in experimental way, not only hardcore relate. Hardcore is only the attitude of the things. It's not only the music. I don't want a uh, category or general definition that define me because I have already my name that's not helped me, but uh, that's, uh, I'm very open. So that will be mixing of new artists that never release with a, uh, also reissues of uh, things that I like it and I'm very glad to um, work it and that w on publication that I, I, I will publish on artists that for me were, were legend. So um, the idea is to bring the vinyl side of the label it will be more like an EP concept and DJ of course for the DJ and electronic harsh lover. And uh, I want to publish, of course, books that could be fanzine or a, a proper book. And also tapes that probably will be like the funny things, like edition of 50 that could be like a live recordings. I'm working on uh, um, a project that is, is a bit concept, is a sort of evolution of Harker Soul. With, uh, I'm cutting and sampling all the advertising about a Raven hardcore compilation in Italy, in Italian. That's nobody can understand or Italian people, but it's a it's a it's a sort of uh, researching and archive stuff. So this could be published. It's a very multimedia open platform. Yeah, it's amazing how you always have so many different things going on at any one time. It's very impressive. Schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you have aspirations for more of your own productions? Yeah, that is my low point. I'm not, I'm not uh, define myself as a producer, so probably is easy to to say artist because I've uh, for me I need to work on the concept of specific things for uh, the P that I publish on Presto. 
let us say, I need to close this EP with these three tracks. I know I don't want to work on 10 tracks and I choose three. I really specific things and concept. So now I'm working on uh, a rave EP with a collaboration with a South African guy called HD Mirror that will be published soon. And uh, I work it on the remix uh, from uh, the Godfather of Hardcore, Mark Akari Payne, The Mover, that will be published uh, next year with uh, Delirio, is uh, another Italian guy. And uh, so next year I wanna, I wanna work on my own stuff that could be similar to, I wanna do some something a little bit more like a abstract, like uh, on Presto, that's, we can call it like, I don't know, uh, f uh, progressive hardcore or something like that. And uh, so using the hardcore sound, but in a new way. And uh, but I, I want to also still have fun, so let's do some proper rave banger. Well, I feel like we've been brought into the world of Gabriella Ganza, so Alberto, thank you so much. Grazie mille, boy. Thanks to all of our contributors on this month's edition of The Hour, and thank you for listening. We're back next time with more documentaries, interviews and discussion.